I want to uh, begin by sharing a pet peeve I have with you guys. Maybe, maybe you have it as well. And it's the pet peeve of fake apologies. All right. So let me give you some examples. Let's say you got a house with kids in it and uh, one kid breaks another kid's toy. Right. And the parent says, hey, you got to apologize for that. And the apology looks more like this. Arms crossed, head turned away, not even looking at the kid they, they harmed and saying, oh, I'm sorry, right? It's, that, it's, the, it's apology only because it was forced. Or this is the friend who said something harsh to another friend, and they respond with this. Hey, I'm sorry, but, right? That's always the key that a fake apology is coming. And what lists after all the reasons why that friend was justified for saying the harsh thing in the way that they did. Or this is the spouse after an argument, and I, I will not say this has happened in my home, especially by me, but the spouse after an argument says, I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt. All right? We know that one. All too personally sometimes. We see this in sports and celebrity culture very frequently. Someone rants uh, online, on social media about an event or a person of some sort, and then everyone comes to kind of call them out for it, and usually the, the apology is something along these lines. I'm sorry I offended you, right? That's, that's the way fake apologies go. And we hate them when other people give them, yet we're prone to them. So why is it? What, what's going on behind? Why do we dislike fake apologies? And I think we dislike them because we, we know what people are really saying behind them, right? I'm sorry that I was caught, or I'm sorry about the consequences I'm facing now. The concern is more about how it affects me, not how it affects you. That's what we're sorry for in fake apologies. Or, I don't really care how it affected you. You don't need to be so easily hurt, right? That's behind some of our fake apologies, that the one giving the fake apology is not really concerned how it really impacted you. They're just sorry you're offended by it, and they're having to deal with it, ultimately, in the end, right? There's really no concern about the wrong committed, uh, only about us who's given the apology. And if you... What's interesting is we see this trend in relationships uh, all around us, but it's not the only place we give fake apologies. It's pretty common that we give fake apologies to God, and it's nothing new to our culture. And what we see probably, you know, 25, 3,000 years ago uh, happening in the book of Judges is fake apologies after fake apologies by God's people. And it's ultimately what we see doing there over and over and over again. And so our passage today that we're coming into really serves two points at this point in Judges. So chapter 10, 6 through 16 is really kind of a midway point in the book of Judges. And it's going to serve two purposes. One is it's going to be setting up the next story, the next judge of Jephthah, which we'll tackle next week. Uh, but the other thing that it does as a midway point is to remind us of what's been happening and the pattern that's been happening over and over again in the book of Judges. But it shows us that God wants something more than a fake apology. It shows us something that God ultimately longs for his people to do in this passage. And we see it here unique in the book of Judges up to this point at this time. And so we're going to focus on what we're reminded about at this point in the book of Judges. And so the big picture, what I hope we see, and it'll be on your screen here as well, is this. Is that the descent into idolatry is disastrous, yet the ascent out is by repentance back into relationship. So I want us to see something about the descent into idolatry and what it looks like to come out of idolatry back into relationship. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come in this morning, uh, what we're going to see in the book of Judges is something that we see not just in our culture, but in our own church, in our own lives. Even myself, as I walk us through this passage. 
And Father, you care about us. You give us your word because you want something better for us than what we often do in our own lives. And so what I want to ask you to do, God, is that you would come here and meet us in your power and your kindness and that you would do something that we have no power to do in and of ourselves is to make your word come alive to us, to meet us here, to meet us in our lives, whatever, however way we're coming in this morning, and to show us something about your gracious nature and who you are and why you're better than everything else in this world. And Father, there are churches gathering all over Boyle County that preach your gospel, and I pray you do the very same things, that you would lift yourself up to show us how you are greater than everything else we could chase in this life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin here with the descent of idolatry. And, and if, if you're new to the Bible or new to a church environment, this phrase idolatry is probably a little bit of a stumbling block for you, right? When we think we're beyond this idea of worshiping idols in our culture, and I can understand why we'd say that because we think about idolatry in these cultures ancient, and we're like, yeah, that doesn't seem, seems a bit foreign to us. So I want, to, I want us to rephrase it, and, and I'll, I'll say idolatry during this sermon, but I want to say more this idea of God's substitutes, of chasing after God's substitutes. And what I mean by that is things that we identify around us, that we put in the place, that we substitute in the place of God, and we begin to give them things that only God should get. And we begin to put them in a place that only God should be in. And we chased after them. I want us to have that in our mind. And that's how I'll refer to it most as we go through this sermon. Is that idea of chasing after God's substitutes. And so what is our passage today summarizing for us about this descent into chasing God's substitutes? And the first thing we're going to see is in verse 6. Is that God's, our God's substitutes can be many. And there's... A, there's we're going to see a few new things that come up in the book of Judges that weren't there previously, and this is one of them here in this passage. In verse 6, it says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. That's been repeated a lot all throughout the book of Judges. This is a bit new for us is what we're seeing. And it adds there, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. And so you can see the repetition here. There wasn't just one God substitute they chased after, but many. So what's behind that is the people of Israel, just like us, crave and thirst and long for a sense of security and comfort in a broken world. And so they have that desire, and that desire surfaced by them chasing after all the places that the surrounding cultures sought to fulfill that desire, right? We can see that. We can identify that with that. And I think that what this verse is summarizing here is a very fair and accurate picture of humanity. And just what, when we look around us, and even internally, what we see in our life as well. And I've got a picture up here as a buffet, and you're probably, why in the world is that up there? Other than to make you think that I need to speed up and so you can get to lunch. Is this, is that the way a buffet works is that it different, so let's say, let's say you go to a buffet restaurant after, dinner, after uh, the service today, and you're going to walk through that buffet, and the way it functions is you look at all the food, and some of you try to get everything on your plate. Most of us are going to say, what looks most appetizing to us at the moment? And that's what we heap onto our plate, and we go back. Now, you could visit that restaurant this week again at another time, and what's different may be that something different looked appetizing on that buffet, and you get that on your plate this week and go around. Well, in the very same way, this is what we do with these cravings that we have inside of us. These cravings for security, for comfort, for satisfaction, for a sense of meaning in life. We look around in our culture and at different seasons, we will choose different things 
that we'll go to and run to, in a sense, to chase after that functions as a God substitute. It really isn't God, but we're running to it to fulfill something that only God can fulfill. And we can do this at different weeks, at different seasons, and it can be, hey, this week this looks appetizing to us. This week that that, that I chose last week didn't seem to do it for me. I'm going to go chase something else. And we do this over and over again. The difference between us and the Israelites is not that we do that, but it's this. Most of our God substitutes are gifts. They're gifts from God. So it makes it even harder to see. But there are things that God has given us, like sex and money and entertainment, things in life that are good, success. There's nothing wrong with them. They're very good gifts from him. But we begin to chase them and try to put them in the place that only God was meant to be. And they become like this buffet line for us. So the Israelites had these defined kind of idols. We tend to choose all the gifts around us and do this very thing. But this buffet of God's substitutes may look appetizing, but in the end, it's the worst meal that we could begin to eat. And we see that in verse 7 and 8. And this is the second thing summary we see that we learn from this passage is that our God's substitutes are a one-way highway to poverty, famine, and slavery. What do we see here in verse 7? So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they were crushed and oppressed uh, the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel. So this is a summary of what we see over and over and over again. If you've been with us in the book of Judges or you read the book of Judges, you see this. There's a promise of the God substitutes, but they get on that highway, and it's a highway with no off-ramps. And what God does is that God is angry at this because of what it says to him and what, how he's rescued his people, and they go back to it. And he gives them over to the natural consequences, in a sense, of their rebellion. And it leads to poverty and famine. It leads to slavery and oppression. And these were physical for Israel. Yet, yet they're also a picture of spiritually what happens. Timothy Keller, in his commentary on the book of Judges, says this. It'll be on your screen. He says, idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery and slavery to idolatry. So God says to the person who worships money, which is a gift from God, right? But we can put it in a place that only he deserves. And this is what it says. If you want to live for money instead of for me, then money will rule your life. It will control your heart and your emotions. If you want to live for popularity instead of me, then popularity, acclaim, and acclaim will rule and control over you. So a couple weeks ago when I was talking in, about Gideon, I mentioned that uh, one God substitute I've chased over and over again in my life is the God substitute of achievement. And I talked about how it had landed me in different seasons of my life at poverty and famine in relationships with others and relationships with God. But it's also led to slavery. And so what I thought would grant me, it grant me a sense of freedom and satisfaction and control which was achievement, that God substitute, what it really landed me in was slavery. And it gave me shackles. And what was that look like? Ultimately, I was controlled by achievement. And I want to tell you some of the ways that I was controlled by this achievement. Because what I'm hoping is that as we see this, we all can begin to identify this, right? So one way I was controlled by it, and it was shackled me, was that it would be the lens through which I would evaluate other people around me. And so the way I would see people, first and primarily, was through competence and what they could achieve not by who they really were, right? And so you begin to think about what it looks like when you're shackled by that and how you begin to evaluate people primarily on what they achieve 
and not by who they are as images of God, right? I would evaluate a season of life primarily on whether I accomplished something or not. So I couldn't really see and enjoy what actually was accomplished because I was shackled by what could be. You see that? That happened over and over again in my life. I couldn't rest and enjoy at a moment because I was too burdened to be productive. And all this was bondage. And the point is that you can take any God substitute and you begin to chase after it. And pretty soon, not only does it lead you in poverty and famine, but you get shackled by it and begins to control all areas of your life. And this is what will happen to any of us as we chase after these. And it's what we see happening to Israel over and over and over again. And ultimately, down that highway, the third thing we're going to see is that our God substitutes are powerless to deliver. And we're going to see this in verse 14. And, we, and this is something that has been a theme. If you read between the lines over and over again in the book of Judges, whatever they chase had no power to deliver them from the consequences that they ended up in. And so God is providing this lesson once again. The Israelites come to him, and they're tired of the slavery and the poverty and famine that their chasing of God's substitutes has brought them. And they cry out to them. And part of God's response we see in verse 14. He said, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. On the screen here is a, is a photo of an actual phone booth. It's in the Mojave Desert. And it's literally 11 to 12 or so miles from any paved road. And so, perfect time for this illustration in the middle of Halloween horror movie season. So I don't know how many of you like horror movies, but you can just get yourself in your mind. Your, uh, your car broke down in the middle of a hobby desert. You start walking, and all of a sudden, this random group of people out of the hills begins chasing you. This literally might be a movie. I don't know if it is or not. Uh, and you see this phone booth, right? And you run up to it, and obviously, this phone booth disconnected. Uh, and you, no matter how many times you pick up that receiver, no matter how hard you press those buttons. And no matter how loud you scream for someone to rescue you, no one's coming. It's powerless to give you any hope of rescue in this moment. There is no one in the surrounding area that will hear you. And this phone has no power to give you the hope that you have, that you long for. This is what God's calling out in a very sarcastic and kind of satirical way. He wants them to see it. These God substitutes took them further than they wanted to go, but they had no power whatsoever to rescue them. Matthew Henry, he's a 17th century theologian. He summarized kind of what God's saying like this. Try to see if those gods have divine power or goodness to help you. Either one. The God substitutes don't really care, and they're powerless to give you any help that you need in that moment. And this, isn't this our experience as well, right? When they, where is the God's substitute achievement when you get fired? Where is the uh, God's substitute of achievement when your marriage tanks? Where is it when your child is sick? <laughs> Neither does the God of achievement care or have any power to deliver you in those moments, right? Think about the God's substitute of approval. Where is it when you're slighted? The popular opinion in the crowds, they don't care if you're in distress, they won't come to your aid as soon as you cross them. And the point that what God is trying to show you is that these God substitutes always take from you and they never give. They never, ever give. And so this passage 
summarizes for us up to this point that there has been a descent into idolatry and it's disastrous. And God up to this point has been rescuing Israel every time they cry to him. And you get a sense and it is, is all the thing that is all that God wants and all that God serves is he just like this ambulance driver who just calls when we call 911? Is he the bail bondsman God who just is going to rescue us when we find ourselves in jail once again? Is that all that God is? Is that all that God wants? God's going to bring some really clear clarity on what he longs for his people in his response to him. And here we're going to see the ascent of repentance. God wants a restored relationship for his people. He wants them to have the joy of being with the true God, not a substitute. And we're going to see this in verses 10 through 14. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, I think this is pretty unique. Up to this point, adding that to their cry hasn't been happening up to this point in the Israelites' life. In verse 11, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I've saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So God's saying here, listen, I've responded over and over again. Yet you keep going back to the same patterns. This isn't right. I'm not rescuing this, you this time. And so what's their response? What's happening here? And I think what we see up to this point is they were stuck in this pattern of counterfeit repentance. It looked like the real thing, but it was a fake apology from the beginning. They never really want to change. They only dislike the consequences of it. And you'll see this on the screen, but this idea of counterfeit repentance is a me-centered repentance. And what we see here is that the Israelites are acknowledging their sin, which is a good thing, right? Yet nothing more. God wasn't having it. Why is that not enough for God? Let's pause and ask that. Like, God is saying, I'm not saving you this time. And when you read it, on some levels, it seems a little harsh, God. But why? What's, what's, what's behind God's response there? And it's ultimately that there was no change, that he saved them before that was to no avail. God longed for them to truly repent, to turn from the rebellion back to him. And also we, all that we see happening up to this point in Judges, and it seems that this situation now is the same, is they acknowledge their sin and they want relief for their consequences, yet they do not want God himself. You see that? They're acknowledging it. No problem acknowledging it. But what they long for is relief, not God. One commentary describes it like this, and this, this should be on the screen here. If you'll click, yep, there we go. And this is from uh, the New International Commentary of the Old Testament. It says, their repentance, listen to this, is merely a tactical move, a contrition of convenience that will not last. They have used it, used him like this before, and he refuses to let them do it again. And this is easy to fall into. So, uh, in our marriage, I noticed a pattern a number of years ago when Noel and I would have fights or arguments or disagreements. And I would, in those patterns, I would very quickly come to the table and apologize for what I had done wrong. But Noel was, had to process it. She wasn't ready to forgive me on the spot. She had to process what had happened. And I would get pretty frustrated with that, right? And it looked, it seemed like I was doing the right thing, right? Going and apologizing quickly, 
trying to make it right again. But in essence, it was all counterfeit repentance. It was a merely a tactical move on my part because I didn't really want to deal with how it impacted her. I wanted to quickly move through it and on to life again. And I knew that if I gave her time, she would begin to express how what I'd done had really hurt her. And I didn't want to deal with that. So it was just a tactical move on my part. It was all about me to try to get through this conflict quickly and move on. It's just like the Israelites. It's counterfeit repentance. It's me-centered and was powerless to change the situation. But we're going to see what God wants here. He wants something far more than that fake apology and far greater. He wants true repentance that's God-centered and leads back to him. We're going to see this. Let's pick it up in verse 15 and 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient of the misery of Israel. So we see a change take place here that's different. It's different up to this point. Up to this point, the only time that I I recollect from my looking at Judges that this happened was when Gideon dismantled the idols in the camp. But here, all the people are doing this, and it seems to indicate true repentance. Well, one caveat here. So if you read into the commentaries, you're going to find two groups. You're going to have some that say this is true repentance, and when it gets to God's impatience, his impatience is with over their suffering because they've truly repented. He wants to relieve them of that now. But there is one camp that says, no, this isn't true repentance, and that impatience is over Israel's constant patterns of the same thing over and over and over again. In both, there's good arguments for either side. If you're going through a book of Judges in the study guide, you you saw those two laid out. I tend to think this is true repentance, and here's why. Let me throw a few phrases out at you. Look at what's happened here. They say, we've sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. So they acknowledge their sin, and they acknowledge that they deserve their consequences. That's what's coming out there, and that God is doing is just in doing what he pleases. But they do place themselves on his mercy, only pleased to deliver us this day. And just the, if you go back to King David, when he sinned against Bathsheba, and one of the consequences when he committed adultery with her and had another man murdered was his son was going to die in childbirth. And if you remember that story, because you, you could say the Israelites, they just care about the consequences. Well, in that story, he truly repents eventually when he's confronted by Nathan. And he does plead with the God, God, to relieve the consequences of his rebellion. God doesn't choose to do so. So there is a way for us to be truly repentant and long to be freed from the consequences of where a rebellion has taken us. And I think that's what we're seeing here. But here's the kicker, and here's what proves their repentance in the end. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. They stopped chasing the God substitutes and went back to God himself. And so I'm going to summarize repentance here, and it'll be on your screen as well. Is that true repentance is turning from a God substitute to God. It involves a change in our mind, our heart, and our will. And I want to walk through that and what we see here with the Israelites. In our minds, we begin to see God differently and thus to sin differently. So we begin to see that these God substitutes for what they are, they're powerless to deliver, only lead us to poverty, famine, and slavery. And we begin to see God differently. He is who he says he is. He is gracious as he is, says he is. And he truly is better than any substitute I could ever choose at the buffet line of God's. We begin to see that differently. And in our hearts, we begin to hate the sin for what it is and how it grieves God, not just where it's taken us. And we see this in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because, why? Because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The language here 
at the end of verse 10, does begin to show what's shifting in their heart. They say they've forsaken God. What does that mean? That they've abandoned a relationship with the Creator who loved them and rescued them time and time again. What they said is that in our sin, I have wanted something else more than you, God. There's a brokenness that I think begins to take place in their heart because of that, not just of where their sin had taken them, but because of what their sin was saying to God. And they said they've served the Baals. So they took their breath, their time, their gifts, their abilities, and they used them to exalt something other than God himself. They stole God's honor to give it to something that else. And so true repentance, we begin to grieve over what our said sin says to God and not just over the consequences. And what we see happening at a heart level here is seeing that God is not just another pathway for meaning and security in our life. He's not just another option in the buffet line. He is the one and only alone who is worthy of our worship and to be served with our gifts and abilities. That's what God is wanting to see, and that's what their brokenness is becoming over. But then you see the proof of that in their wills. What's happening is what's, how they're beginning to see differently and what they begin to grieve over begins to play out in their actions. They begin to turn back. Verse 16 says they put away the God substitutes and they turn to serve the living and true God. So this action is saying, is showing us that you and I, we can't just say no to God's substitutes. We're always chasing something. And so we've been created to long for meaning, for purpose, security, satisfaction, you name it. We're always going to be chasing after that. The question is where? And repentance means we say no to the substitutes around us, even if they're gifts of God. And we begin to order them rightly and chase him instead. And this is what God wants for his people. This is what he longs for. He longed for them to turn to him out of descent. And I will say this, there's a lot more that could be said about repentance. And so in the back on your way out, right before you get to the foyer, there's a sheet of paper that's there just going to describe what biblical repentance is, what counterfeit repentance is in more detail and give you an example from David and Bathsheba in the Old Testament. So I would encourage you to grab that on your way out. But one thing I want to say about this, we can get a picture here of the situation that repentance is this one big time event. And sometimes it is that, especially if we have chased like the Israelites all the way down uh, this highway, all the way down to where it ends in poverty and famine and slavery. But more than that, and most of the time, where repentance is, this kind of repentance is an ongoing rhythm of the Christian life. This is the normal uh, pattern of living as a Christian. You and I are constantly tempted to chase after other God's substitutes. And we're going to find ourselves either tempted or falling into that temptation. And there are opportunities to turn from that, to repent. Because of what it says to God and how it grieves Him, we begin to turn back to Him. This is the ongoing rhythm of the Christian life. This is what God longs for us in the small moments of the day. And so in summary, when God sees us descend into idolatry, chasing after these God substitutes, He is offended. Yet He also is drawn to chase after us. He longs for us to experience him and not the poverty, famine, and slavery that comes from these God substitutes. And so this ascent of repentance really is an ascent back into relationship. So where do we go from here? We've got two things I want to challenge us with as we leave. And the first one is this, and, and this is what we all should be asking ourselves as we walk out of here. 
Every one of us comes in and we're tempted or chasing after something other than God. That is the, that is the burden of the everyday life that we face. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves, have we mistaken recognition of a sin as repentance from that sin? It is unbelievably easy, especially if you know the phrases of the Bible that talk about sin, to mistake recognition of a sin for repentance of it. We may see it. We may even understand why we turn to it. We may could give you all the reasons, and we could maybe even articulate to you why God is better. But deep down, all we do is recognize it, and we've learned to coexist with it and live side by side with it and tolerate with it. And we work it out where we can do that in our life. And we comfort ourselves because we recognize it, and we think that's repentance. But in the end, there's no real change. And that's the challenge for us all. And so walking away, I think we've got to ask ourselves, in what areas of our life have we found ourselves taking a gift of God, something good from Him, chasing after it to give it something only God was meant to have? And then we've grown to just coexist with that. We've grown to just tolerate. And maybe we use our Christian knowledge to justify it in saying we recognize it and we recognize why we're going after it. We've got to walk away from it. This is what God longs for his people. You see the seriousness of God in this passage because he longs for them to return to relationship with him. And so he's calling out these tactical moves, these fake apologies, because he wants them to experience who he is fully. And then secondly, and you'll see this on the screen, is to keep returning to God through Christ's work on the cross. I say keep returning deliberately there. Because repentance in our life, we, we can mistake repentance as this one-time thing, that once we do it, we never have to do it again. But the reality is, is that we keep struggling, we keep falling back. And so we keep returning. But the good news is for us that we're not left alone in our descent. Our turning back to God is only possible because he has turned to us. And that's the beauty of re- reading Judges, this side of the cross, is that we know whatever we see in the book of Judges, And we see the turn of God's people back to him in those moments. That it is even more so for his people now this side of the cross. Because we very clearly see God's heart for his people. We can confess our sin because we know that he's paid for it. And here's the beauty of it. When we get into the descent, one of the thoughts in our mind is how do we make up for this? How do we tactically make up for this? How do we, we've got this heap and mountain of guilt on our shoulders from chasing after God's substitute after God's substitute. What in the world do we do with it? We come to church, right? We read our Bible. Listen, those are worthless to return you to God. There is no power in your acts of righteousness to erase your guilt of chasing after a God substitute. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That as you and I walk in this morning, the return of this and out of descent is not through us stacking good work on good work after another. It is to look to the reality that Jesus, when he went to the cross, He paid for not just the God substitute you chased last week, but the one you'll chase after this afternoon. His sacrifice for you was knowing full well all the ways you would struggle throughout your whole life to see him as he is. That's the beauty of the gospel. That is why you and I can confess to God and to one another what we've chased after besides him. We can return as well because we know that he is a father 
waiting for us. That despite our offense, despite our foolishness, the cross has unleashed his steadfast love for us. Instead of returning to a stern look and a reduced role in God's kingdom, we really do return to an eager father, eager to show us the kindness of the son, eager to forgive us, eager to restore us. He is a father longing for a return of his children. Let's pray. Father, if we would sit here and try to come up with a God to worship, we could never come up with a God like this. We can't fathom the love of a God who would look at a room full of people, much less anyone else in our culture, who know the truth of who you are and chase after things other than you, yet you welcome in a return of repentance because of what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross. We can't fathom that. We can fathom us trying to earn our way back. We can fathom us trying to stack all good work on good work on good work to get there. We can't fathom a father who welcomes the return. And the only way that return was possible was through the sacrifice of his son. That's glorious. I pray that you'd capture our hearts with that this morning. For those in the room who, have, who only know God's substitutes and never have tasted the true God, I pray that they'd return to you. They would turn to the one they were designed for. And they would turn through the cross. Through confessing and repenting. I pray those in this room that find themselves at the end of this highway. All they look around and they are tasting the poverty in their relationships. They taste the famine of where this God substitute has taken them. And they feel the shackles on them and don't, can't imagine how in the world they would get out from it. The beauty of the gospel that says those shackles can be broken as they turn to look to the cross. God, I pray that you would help break those shackles now and in the coming weeks for them. And they would return to you in hope. And I pray that those in the room that uh, maybe not all the way down on that highway, but that highway looks awfully attractive. But they found themselves on it, not quite tasting the poverty and feeling like they, these gods will deliver for us. I pray that this would serve as a warning and a call to return home to the Father. We need you. Would you meet us here? Amen.